0: So we're saying this morning that there are things that affect you from a distance and there are things that affect you close up. What is the difference? A distance means that it overrules you, it it scrambles your system. by overpowering you, whereas that which affects you from close up m- means that which appeals to you as you are now. It doesn't overwhelm, it doesn't shatter, it doesn't disregard what you're feeling and what you're thinking. On the contrary, based on what you know and based on what you're feeling, it appeals to you on those grounds. Said so for example, if you want to tell a child that he's got to behave himself, you want to tell a child that he has to do something which this child is never going to un- understand, so you say to the child, I'm your father, or I'm your mother, and I'm telling you to do this, and you have to obey me. Now, do it. And the kid doesn't feel like it, doesn't know why, and doesn't like it, but he's going to do it because you said so. Then there are times when you want to appeal to the child. So what do you do? You say to him, you know how good food can taste when it's like an ice cream. You know how good that can taste and how good that, how good that is. For, for God, when you do a mitzvah, it's like giving him some ice cream. So what are you doing? You're taking something already familiar to the child and you're appealing to him on that basis. You know how much you want an ice cream and how sad you are when I refuse to give you, and how upset you are when you can't get one. When God asks you to do a mitzvah, it's the same thing. So it's the exact opposite. Instead of saying, you're a dumb kid, all you know about is ice cream, I'm trying to tell you something much, much more important, so just do what I tell you. Which is sometimes necessary and, and, and perfectly healthy. But that's the exact opposite of when you stop to consider, let's see, what does this kid understand about life, and based on that, I will appeal to him to be good. So one uses the system as it is, as as feeble as it is, and the other says, feeble system, then get it out of the way, I'm coming through. That's the difference between will and intellect. Will says, I want this. You're not ready. That's too bad. You don't think so. I didn't ask your opinion. You don't feel like it. Well, that's irrelevant to the importance. When you get old, older, you'll understand. Right now, you do what I tell you. Which is fine. That's willpower. If we didn't ever do that, we would be total helpless. On the other hand, intellect says, let's see, what do I know about this subject that's going to help me? What do I understand? What do I feel? What tastes do I have? What experiences do I have that will help me accomplish this, this goal? One of the differences, of course, is that afterwards, when it's done, if it was willpower, There's nothing left. You haven't changed at all. Like the guy who was able to squeeze through a a narrow crack in a wall, afterwards, he can't do it again. It's not as if he acquired the talent of squeezing himself through narrow openings. He hasn't acquired any talent at all, because he hasn't really changed. or as he says in Shir Hashirim, after you finally get aroused because God aroused you and you run to look for godliness, you don't find anything. There's nobody there. Because you didn't suddenly develop new talents. You're the same person you were before. Lazy to get out of bed because you already got into bed. You don't want to try again. That's it. But if you work from within if you appeal to the child on his childish level, then the result, the effect is lasting. It's a different kind of child. From now on, this child likes doing mitzvahs. Just like he likes having ice cream, he likes doing mitzvahs. And if you don't let him do a mitzvah, he'll be just as upset as if you don't let him have an ice cream. So the effect is permanent. Something has really changed in this child. The only problem is, since something has really changed in this child, then it must be that the change is a childish one. Be- because he's a child. If you're going to overrule his childishness, then you're back to the, first, to the first method again. So by not overruling him, it means that you're going to accomplish something permanent, but on a pretty uh, juvenile level compared to god we're always juvenile so if an adult prevails on himself through reasoning and logic and learning and experience that you ought to be doing these mitzvahs then the effect is permanent but childish because how intelligent is a human intelligence So these are the advantages and the disadvantages of the two ways of being inspired. You have to use both. You have to use both. both. The only thing is that even if you use both, you still don't have, obviously, if the person uses only one method, only one to the exclusion of the other, his life is going to be lopsided. He's lopsided. He's going around very inspired, but you try to talk to him, he has nothing to say. His head is empty, and his heart is empty, but he's very inspired. His eyes are very bright, but beyond the eyes, there's nothing which can be very tricky by the way. You see somebody with that inspired look in their eye, it's hard to believe that inside they're empty. But they are. On the other hand, you can talk to people who on the inside are really quite impressive, they're full, but they have absolutely no commitment to Yiddishkeit. They won't budge an inch from self-interest. They will not step out of their way if God himself knocked on their door. So obviously, either way, life is lopsided. Too much weight in one area and not any weight at all in the other. You can't live like that. But even when the person says, I will do both, I will do mitzvahs because they are God's mitzvahs, and I will study Torah because I need to fill my insides. And so he will be inspired from above and full from within. So he's not lopsided anymore, he's suffering from a different problem. Not from lopsidedness, but from dual loyalties, he's got a split personality. Comes Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, he's an inspired Jew. Comes Tuesday afternoon, in the middle of the week, he's not, but he's very well learned. And so he jumps from one to the other in order to keep the balance. Any taka has the balance, but it's not unified. There's no harmony. So you see an individual who on Shabbos. Davin's like an angel, all inspired and all a flutter. And during the week, he is cold and rational and scholarly, but not inspired. You say, oh, that's a wonderful balance. It is a wonderful balance, but it's not a harmony. He lives two distinct lives, he's a split person. How is that resolved? That's one of the achievements or contributions of Hasidus, that it made possible through this new revelation of Torah, new dimension of Torah, it made it possible to be both at the same time. The previous Rebbe's father was suffering from headaches, and he went to uh, to uh, to one of the famous psychoanalysts back then. And they spoke for many hours, and at the end, the analyst says, "I don't know what to tell you, but." But I can tell you what, I don't know what, I don't know what to tell you that's going to help, but I can tell you what's wrong. What's wrong is your rational mind demands what the heart can't contain. And the heart feels what the mind can't contain. That's what's causing the headaches. Or in different words, the faith urges the mind to where mind can't go, and the mind urges the emotions to where emotions can't go. The Rebbe was straining, straining the limits of human tolerance. But in doing so, he helped, along with the other rebbes, he helped create a, a method in which these two can be possible. The more the mind understands, the greater is the faith. And the greater the faith, the greater the capacity of the mind. Not side by side. Intertwined. or as somebody once remarked when he first started learning hasidus he said i don't understand i sit there and use my mind in studying hasidus he says i don't understand i sit there and use my mind and when i come away my heart is excited i understand i know that there's a time for emotional joy and expression of our, of our enthusiasm for yiddishkeit and there's a time to sit and learn but i don't understand how i can sit and learn and come away excited in the heart not in the mind excitement in the mind is normal you learn something exciting your mind is excited but how do i come away with excitement in the heart that i, I didn't understand how that because the the intelligence of hasidus is a divine intelligence what is a divine intelligence Uh, it's a freak. It's an impossibility is what it is. Intelligence is by its very definition not divine. And that which is divine cannot by definition be apprehended through the mind. And yet that's what Hasidus is. the impulses of the neshama put to words and words that arouse neshama. Not words, concepts. Of all the Hasidic groups in the world, none of the groups emphasizes the mind as much as Chabad. I mean, the title itself. And yet, at the same time, none of the groups so dismiss the importance and significance of intellect as Chabad. Strange combination. Where other Hasidim are content to have faith in God, Chabad comes along and says, faith is very nice, but that's what you're born with. What about know the God of your fathers? Where's the knowledge? Why don't you study Hasidus? Because all the other Hasidim don't study Hasidus. They have Hasidic customs, but they don't have Hasidic teachings. They don't study Hasidus. So we can't we can't relate to them. We can't we can't understand how you can. hope to serve God without knowing Him, without using your mind. But at the same time, or maybe for that very reason, um, a labavitcher chassid sees the limitations of the mind and does not allow himself to be caught in that trap. So if the logic, if the experience, if the feelings lead you to to a closeness to God, meaning a devotion to God, then it's fine. If not, it's useless. And if your devotion to God leads you to a better understanding and to a deeper feeling and to more action, then it's fine. If not, it's useless. One of the uh, early Hasidim once said that if he saw a Rebbe stop a funeral and walk over to the casket and revive the dead person in the casket, the Hasid said, I would say to this Rebbe, if you can teach me about the oneness of God, then i'll be your chassid if you can't teach me the oneness of god what do i need your miracles for a miracle can be very inspiring but towards what end so faith isn't not faith um, inspiration is an overwhelming experience and it's wonderful and it can break you out of the worst places where you think you're stuck in the 49th level of unholiness, a miracle can break you out of there. But then what? If you don't rush off to Mount Sinai and learn something, then you're a runaway slave. No great accomplishment. On the other hand, The previous Rebbe's father said that anybody who studies Chassidus just for the intelligence of it would be better off not studying. He used a sharper expression than that. But So what then is the solution? The solution is not only to have both, but that they should both be at the same simultaneous. Within the within the intelligence there should be faith, and in faith there should be there should be intelligence. An intelligent faith and a faithful intelligence. That's that's harmony. That's Hashem Echad. In order to create this kind of possibility, the Al Rebbe had to put his, line, his life on the line. He had to literally sacrifice himself because in a very real way, What he was trying to do violated the laws of nature that God had instituted in creation. Not only nature of the physical universe, but even the nature of Torah. If we could use that expression. The nature of holiness and creation are are mutually exclusive. Creation says by its nature, that it can't be holy, and holiness by its nature says we we can't be we can't be natural. Miracle and nature are mutually exclusive. So when you have a miracle, nature has to go. When you have nature, there can't be miracles. Those are the laws. What the devil wanted was to violate both of those laws. He wanted that the human mind should be able to comprehend and contain divinity, and he wanted divinity to allow itself to, to be brought down into, uh, into the rational mind. That was tampering with the laws of the universe. And in order to get away with it, he had to be willing to die. for the same reason that Avraham, who wanted to bring the awareness of God into a world where there was no such awareness, in order to accomplish that, he had to be willing to die. And so for every page, for every chapter of Tanya, the Rebbe sat in jail facing a possible death sentence. 53 days. And according to Hasidic history, the reason that the Rebbe was not executed, was not put to death, is because his daughter died instead of him. It was that year that his daughter somehow knew that things were not good for her father. And so she called in three of the most respected hasidim a Kohen, a Levi, and a Yisrael, and she swore them to secrecy. And she wouldn't tell them all that she knew but she said to them that i am appointing you a besden a court and i want you to decree to rule that i am taking my father's place and uh they did they did as, as she said and this was a couple of weeks before rosh Hashan, i believe when her father came home from davening Rosh Hashanah, he was about to say, You should be inscribed for a good year. She interrupted him and she didn't let him finish. She says, No, no, you have a good year. And uh, that year she became very ill and she passed away. Just before she passed away, she asked the Altar Rebbe to do her this one favor of raising her son, who was the Tzamach So, uh, so Hasidic tradition says that in order for Hasidus to become a reality in this world, the al Tereb's daughter, Dvar had to die. Somebody had to give their life for this. Because it was a violation of all the rules in heaven and on earth. But nobody ever said that bringing Mashiach was going to be easy. And that's why we find today, in the past, Jews who studied Torah, Studied Mishnah and studied Gemara and studied Shulchan Aruch and studied the Chumash and studied the prophets and studied Jewish philosophy. And they couldn't inspire another Jew to do a single mitzvah. There was nothing inspiring. It was, something was wrong. It was, it was sterile. It was sterile. And then there were those Jewish leaders who were very inspiring. Very inspiring. Just being near them was inspiring. And whoever went to visit there, whoever stayed there, came away singing and dancing in ecstasy. But then they would forget to put on film. They would eat food that wasn't so 100% kosher. They They would play their guitars on Shabbos. So wait a minute, what's going on here? What's going on here? It's because the time had come when the only f- way to inspire properly in our generation was through this dimension of Torah that is called hasidus And without it, you have inspiration that goes nowhere and you have learning that doesn't inspire. Thirty years later, after Hasidus came to America, Thirty years later, other Orthodox groups were suddenly interested and and moved to reach out, to reach out to other Jews. For the first thirty years, They laughed at it. They thought it was ridiculous, they thought it was unnatural, they thought it couldn't work, they thought it was cheapening Torah. Thirty years later, today, there isn't a single genuine Jewish organization worthy of the stationery they print that doesn't have an outreach program, a yeshiva for Bali every, everybody. And in doing that, in doing that, they were forced to adopt all sorts of Hasidic concepts and Hasidic vocabulary. Remember having a discussion with a with a teacher, a Russian yeshiva actually, in a non Lubavitch yeshiva, and we're talking about why Lubavitch wastes its time with hippies. And I said something to him about the Pintalayid, that spark of Jewishness in the Jew that can be aroused, and so on. I heard later how the whole yeshiva, his yeshiva, was. was having a good time with that expression. They thought it was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever heard. That somebody invented this ridiculous notion, some pintaliyid, and on this they base a whole philosophy, and on this they run around, talk, and, and you know, hippies have I mean, It was like the biggest joke in town. Today, can any baal movement, can any yeshiva for baal can you even begin to talk Yiddishkeit without mentioning the pintaliyid? No. So it's become part of their vocabulary. 30 years ago, it was a a joke to them. The word neshama was to them taboo. You don't talk about such things. It's not a halachic thing. You can't measure it. You can't weigh it. You can't prove it. You don't talk about such things. It's too holy. It's too mystical. You don't understand what you're saying. Today, does anybody... Will will anybody talk to you about Yiddishkeit without saying something about Anishama? So, for all practical purposes, although there's still a long way to go, but for all practical purposes, the essence of Hasidus has reached far beyond Lubavitcher circles, even into those circles where Lubavitch is still a taboo word. Even in those yeshivas where if if they catch you learning tanya, it is a greater scandal than if they catch you reading who knows what. And yet, they're using the vocabulary of Tanya. Otherwise, how could how could they be into bringing Jews to Yiddishkeit? <clears throat> On the other hand, those who study Hasidus, even minimally, even minimally, are no longer sterile the little bit of Yiddishkeit that you come away with after studying Hasidus a little bit, that little bit of Yiddishkeit is contagious. Not sterile. There was a woman here from California a lot of years ago. I don't remember how she got here. Um, I can't imagine how she got here because she was coming from a little place in California where nobody wears clothes. And she had lived there for about five years. And coming here was too radical a change for her. Of course, the people here were very uncomfortable with the amount of clothes she wore. And she was uncomfortable with the amount of clothes she wore, but for obvious, for opposite reasons. (laughs) And so she couldn't. And she left. But she would call from time to time to talk. And although she had liked what she had started learning, but she just couldn't take the lifestyle, because clothing, too much clothing. And, uh, And one day she calls, and she says that she's very excited because a cousin of hers is coming from Israel to visit the United States. And she, the cousin, is the only religious member in her whole family. And she's very excited because now she can stay in California. She doesn't have to come here. And she'll be able to learn from her cousin more about Yiddishkeit, which she wants to learn. A couple of weeks later, she calls me back. Uh, how's your cousin? Oh... We got into a big fight. What happened? Her cousin wanted to go out to eat. So she says to her cousin, But there's no kosher place here. I don't have any kosher places that we can go to eat. So the cousin said, It's all right, we'll eat vegetables on cold plates. And she says, I was so shocked. She said, I was so disappointed. How can you do that? What are you playing games? And she gave her a whole lecture about <laughs> about how. I mean, truth is truth, and a mitzvah is a mitzvah, and this is what God said. And what do you mean you're gonna cold plates with salads and non-kosher plates? How can you go there? You're the Orthodox one. You're the From one. You not. So here's a woman who was raised in an Orthodox family all her life. And here is a woman who, for five days—literally, five days—took a break from her, uh, from the place she called home, and heard a little bit about godliness, about Yiddishkeit, and yet her instinct—or whatever you want to call it—was more. One woman studies a little bit of chassidus. And immediately, she feels terrible. And and it hurts her that her family is is not keeping mitzvahs. Another woman goes to a yeshiva for three years. An orthodox yeshiva. And coming home after three years, she confides in a friend of hers. That she came back to her family and she thought, you know, she would teach them about this and the other. But she says, they're so happy. They're so happy. Why should I mess up their life? With Yiddishkeit. I mean, the difference between two reactions from two people coming from Yeshiva. After two weeks, Of studying Hasidus, one of them is heartbroken because her mother won't light candles, and the other one says, "What do you want? My mother's happy. What if she doesn't need it? She doesn't need it." So what Hasidus really is, is godliness with lyrics.